A vague disclaimer is no one's friend. This podcast will look at episodes in relation to Buffy and Angel as a whole, and therefore contains spoilers for the entirety of both series. If you haven't seen all of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel the series, go and watch them before you listen to this. Remember, you've been warned. The hardest thing in this world is to live in it. That's why there's us, champions. We live as though the world were as it should be, to show it what it can be. The Earth is definitely doomed. It's Tuesday, so it must be time to return to the Hellmouth. We're going through the Buffyverse episode by episode, and a look back at Joss Whedon's iconic shows. I'm MC, and I'm here with... I'm Andy. I'm David. I'm Jan. And I'm Logan. Today we are talking about Passion, which is episode 17 of season 2. It originally aired February 24th, 1998, and was written by Ty King and directed by Michael Gershman. Which seriously surprised me when I looked up who wrote and directed this. I'm like, how is this not a Joss episode? But also, thinking about it, I was like, this is obviously not a Joss episode in terms of directing, because this is a fucking beautiful episode. (laughs) And I'm I'm not trying... I am shading Joss, but at this point, Joss had not quite reached... He'd only done, like, two episodes. Any kind of visual style, yeah. But Michael Gershman, and I was like, who dat? Because um, the, the name didn't jump out at me. I looked it up. This is his first episode of Buffy directing. He will direct nine more episodes after this, but he was the director of photography. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. And so I'm like, oh, okay. So everything makes so much more sense now. He was like in charge of the cinematography. So that's why this episode looks so fucking cinematic. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. Right at that opening scene. That crowd scene is done really well. The lighting looks, which is, we've complained about a lot these first few seasons, the lighting, and then they obviously get a better budget as they move into season two. But even even for that budget, this is a standout episode. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, it looks good. Yeah. Really and and, and the, the, the cinematic stuff changes throughout the, by season seven, it's actually really beautifully lit, you know, but they, yeah, they still have a smaller budget. It's still, you know, second season and not quite visually filing out cylinders but this yeah this episode is gorgeous yeah there's still some times where it looks like things are like shot in like a storage bin (laughs) and it's still slightly grainy it's slightly grainy it only looks like that because it is shot in a storage bin (laughs) true i mean the bronze is a giant storage bin basically so so we start out with angela's stalking buffy and monologuing which you know he loves Yep. Mm. Monologuing and stalking are his two favorite things. And brooding. Well, I guess he doesn't brood as much. No, Angel doesn't brood. Angel broods. I think that's one of the most effective voiceovers of any series. It's like really iconic. Of any series that doesn't normally use a voiceover, right? Because Buffy doesn't. I mean, it's not Jane the Virgin where there's the best freaking voiceover in the history of all things. I would have gone Veronica Mars. Oh, Veronica Mars would yeah, it's good too. But um, in this, it's so iconic and it's so... But like, and there's yeah. a very weird, like, twisted noir, like film noir, even though it's in color, etc. It's like a film noir feel to me. Just so that sort of, like, broody, atmospheric. It's, it's phenomenal. It really works well for this script, too. Yeah. I think one of the best things about it is that it's very um, philosophical rather than, you know, talking about exactly what's happening with characters. It's it's Angel's monologuing. It lays out the mission statement for the episode, basically. Mm-hmm. It does. It's like a thesis statement. The way they carries on into Whistler's 
appearance in the show and his narration, which I think works as well. You know, even though Taiking is solely credited for this, I would not be surprised if us took a pass with a passion monologue. Oh, Joss's fingerprints are all over this fucking thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. for sure. Totally. I mean, there are some funky writing things that I want to talk about later. Mm-hmm. Some actual dialogue, but like the mood of the episode, that freaking monologue voiceover, mm-hmm. it's creepy and it's iconic and it's gorgeous. And I have a complaint. Oh, no. Oh, no, really? That's so surprising. Please tell the complaint. Way back in... Like the first episode, Giles gives Buffy this whole speech about how Slayer should be able to sense vampires. (laughs) And it's like, I mean, he's 10 feet away. How does she not notice he's there? Has she still not learned to sense vampires? She literally senses him later in the episode, not. Ten minutes later in the yeah. episode, she's like, yeah. "I was wondering whether he like had some kind of like vampire cloaking device that we hear yeah. never never heard of before." Because yeah, nobody sees him. I mean, like, granted, vampires are stealthy in general, but here it's like he's super, super sneaky. You know, invisible, whatever angel and jealous. Yeah, that bugs me because Buffy should be like on her toes about him at this point. As we as we will learn more and more as this episode goes on. I have. It's not a complaint. It was just a weird thing, just especially given the the. the things of last week's episode um the fact that yeah. it seems like buffy is like suddenly sexy dancing with um xander again at the bronze it's like that mm. just seemed like kind of weird like she's not dancing with her friends she's not <laughs> dancing with willow or anything she's like kind of sexy dancing with xander which is a throwback and like why is she doing that particular thing i, I think that buffy just kind of sexy dances yeah, I think I, that's just the way that Sarah dances. Yeah, I think it's just I think it's just dancing, dancing. Yeah, yeah. I know. It's just it's a weird thing. She's dancing with Sandor of all people. So yeah, well, I, I didn't find it particularly sexy. I actually felt it was very much a callback to School Hard. Spike stalking Buffy while she was dancing with her right. friends, and in this one we have Angela stalking right. Buffy while she's dancing with her friends. This is the first episode where we get angels slash angelus's interest in art in being an artist uh, which i think pairs really nicely with uh spike being a poet i think they need to release a book (laughs) (laughs) yeah except that angelus is a much better artist than spike is a poet yeah, but all of An- Angelus's drawings are really fucking creepy, so it <laughs> creepy, balances creepy, out. But nicely done. Portrait of an artist is a tortured young vampire. <laughs> and we'll, I mean, we'll see Angel sketching and drawing not mm-hmm. so creepily throughout Angel, actually. Yeah. Uh, it's still pretty creepy what he does. With <laughs> truth, truth. Because usually when he's doing it, it's like, I'm obsessed with Darla right now. I'm going to be drawing some pictures. And yeah. 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 I love I love my boy Angel, but even when he's like a good guy, he's still kind of creepy. He is, yeah. He's you're like mm-hmm. two hundred yeah. years of Arrested Development does a number on a dude. Truth, yeah. truth. I do want to ask Giles, like, what the fuck is he thinking? Like when Buffy comes in with the drawing and is like, he was in my room last night, and Giles asks who. It's like, who the fuck do you think? I don't know, the Pope? Principal Snyder! (laughs) Ah, That's even creepier! I I mean, like, who would concern Buffy about coming into her room at night? And who has already done it, like, a million times? Right! And and, And she says he. It's not like, Willow was in my room last night, you know? Just... I've read that fanfic. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was just about to say, yeah. It's just like, Giles, use some deductive reasoning here, but creepy picture. He was in my room. 
I mean, it could have been Xander because he's <laughs> not as good an artist. You're like, yeah. well, yeah. you I... have two. You have two choices, Giles. You're either Xander or it was Angel. But I, I have to say, like Giles is a little. Everyone is a little out of it, in my opinion. It's like, like my my first, one of my first notes is, how did they not think to try to get the houses unvampire friendly until yep. now yeah and if such a spell exists why don't the watchers just have it to hand why does why is giles going oh i don't know if there's a spell i'll look true that the watchers are useless this well, that just doesn't make sense <laughs> well does giles find it from the watchers council or does he get no, it from that jenny, book that jenny, jenny gets, gets it from the jenny book yeah, he's not sure there is actually a spell until then. And you're right, that is, like, dumb because this shouldn't have been the first time somebody needs to uninvite a vampire into their home. Well, I, I, I'm I'm sure, actually, probably in most situations where a vampire gets invited into somebody's home, somebody ends up dying soon afterwards. Mm. So it's probably not, like, Yeah, yeah but you would think the Watchers Council has had episodes of someone the maid inviting someone in and someone in the house lives or someone else wants to live in the house eventually and they, well i mean yeah, once yeah. the person who owns the house dies, dies i'm pretty you... sure the, invi- the invitation is revoked what about moves mm. about what moves uh they have to re-invite them okay. yeah. but if you invite them before you have a place then they can come <laughs> right. in because that in. happened because that happened Angel. to cordelia yes. right he's like hey, you invited me before and you're like what yeah I do have another Giles issue. Uh, I don't know if this is so much Giles being relatively clueless or the fact that it was the 90s, but he's talking about the battle strategy of of Angelus uh, trying to break down Buffy, saying it's battle strategy. He's trying to throw you off base. And I'm like, no, Giles, this is stalking. This is the horrific mental abuse of your slayer. Yeah, I mean, the fact that she says, you know, oh, like, ignore him and it'll just go away. And, like, I want to slap Giles at that point because Buffy is right. It's like, this is abuse. This is stalking. It's mm. not just like, oh, he's messing with you and he's, you know, at some, like, weird haka whatever yeah i do think it's pro it mostly it probably is giles not knowing how to quantify it uh with his job as a watcher i think he's just being he's going for the practical rather than the emotional it's like like he has to like like he's trying to get to you so you you have to not respond to this because that's what buffy has to do and he's just telling her that but he's not He's shoving the sympathetic and emotional stuff aside for the practical. And I think that is part of his, you know, role as a watcher. And he, and although Giles is a more sympathetic watcher than most, he still has all that watcher training. And I think that's getting in the way. And he's still a dude that doesn't understand the terror and horror of a woman being stalked. Because that's okay. not, that's not something that dudes think about uh, like bigger heterosexual you know what i mean like you know what i mean right it's like a lot of men even now are like oh i didn't understand that that was that bad for you he's a dude who not only has battle skills despite his propensity for getting knocked out but he also has a grasp on like really strong magic so like he's not somebody who feels afraid a lot but he is going at this in a way that's dangerously pragmatic what he says mm. to Buffy when she's talking about um, telling Joyce you know you can't be a slave to your passions or whatever it's 
not the smartest way to go about it. No. I'm I'm blaming the watcher training. Especially knowing that like Angel tortured psychologically and physically tortured Drusilla before he turned her. So you know he's got this pattern and it's not just like, oh well he's kind of annoying, yeah, ignore him. This is somebody who has like a reputation and we've seen the actual outcome of what he's done to people. No matter what, you know, if Buffy responds to it, if Buffy doesn't, no matter what, Angel's going to step it up. And that's what we see in this episode, Angel stepping it up. He's he's going to kill people. We already know that. And he's already starting to torture. So Man, that shot of him looming over her. I mean, it was creepy when he would come in her room and look at her when he had a soul. But that image mm. of him looming over the bed still 20 years on terrifies me. It makes my abs- And the way it's shot, because we talked about how well directed <clears throat> this is, it is it's terrifying in an actual horror movie way, not like horror comedy like Buffy can be. No, th- this is shot, a lot of this is shot like horror movie, horror movie. I mean, we'll talk about that more later, but there's some scenes here that are just like, oh my God, I, you know, especially like the first time you see it. I mean, granted, we're rewatching it now, but I remember being like, really like, I thought, is he going to try to kill Buffy? Like, what is going on here? I was yeah. legit scared during this episode. We have Giles and Jenny together and they're fucking heartbreaking but i am very curious as to why does jet well i mean i guess it's because she's a member of their clan but why does jenny think that her people were the people that angela's hurt the most she killed a lot of people i assume it's because that's what her family culture taught her yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, like, we see the flashback as to what happens to the Calderash girl on Angel. She doesn't get any more dead than anybody else. And frankly, <laughs> I, would say, I would say that Drusilla was probably tortured. 100% the worst. Yeah. yeah. Because we also see the flashback what happens to Drew, so. And it's I worse. mean, Yana, you know, Calderash was, she was taught in her culture. Like, it's a cultural mm-hmm. heritage, and, and we're all informed by the way we're raised and the the narratives we're told in our lives. So to her people, it was the worst thing he ever did. And they hurt them the most. Right. Yeah. I mean, the way I, when back when we saw uncle Enos, you you really do get the feeling that her people really like, yeah, whatever happened, you take anything that can happen. If it happened to us, it's worse. Basically, they've let themselves be entirely formed by Angelus. Even though, actually, if you look at it, Darla did worse to them. Because Darla kills off most of them. I know, right? Oh, by the way, when... I forget if we've gotten to this scene yet, but when Willow talks about Giles finding a spell to undo the vampire invitation, she says, he's Bookman. I want to know, can I be Bookman? Do I get a costume? Yeah! I, I, I like, I totally want to be Bookman. <laughs> See, I know a lot of book. I would have thought pen man for you because I know you like your pens. I do like my pens, but I have a lot more books than I do pens. <laughs> well, you know, there's plenty of opportunity for you to cosplay that, David, and I. I would like to see that. I would like to. See I mean, if you let me make you a cosplay where you're book man, then and you will actually wear it, then yes, you will be. Book hey, man, I, I can even I think of a specific book. I want you to cosplay you could be like a Giles, walking, David. You could be a walking ad for my book. Or you could I, be a you could be a walking ad for a book you're in. It would be even better. Just so. like a sandwich board. Well, even better though. Like the guys outside the um, you know, the electronics store dancing around like dressed right. cell phone. So. <laughs> okay, moving moving on. Um, Buffy talking to Joyce. 
about mm. so I dated this remember that really hot guy that I was friends with <laughs> yeah I dated him and he's getting creepy yeah and Joyce is like oh yeah oh that guy oh really you didn't remember that guy <laughs> And it's like, as we talked about last week, she just got rose, these creepy roses from somebody. And Joyce, like, doesn't put two and two together. Like, oh, you mean the guy that sent you the flowers or anything? She's just like, oh, yeah, that guy. And, like, totally discounts the whole thing. Later on, Joyce, like, is like, why? I want you to talk to me about these things. And it's like, Joyce, talk to your fucking daughter right now because she's, mm-hmm. you know... Buffy's like shut, trying to shut her down. It's like, has he done anything? No, you, Joyce, you have to like probe deeper. Yeah, I mean, and also, but I will say that Buffy's trying to down. Obviously, she can't tell her mom. I mean, she could tell her that you know her stalker boy ex boyfriend is a vampire. Uh-huh, but like Buffy, vampire, yeah, yeah, I mean, and children tend to downplay. Even adult children tend to downplay things to their parents. Yeah, I've had to have this conversation with my mother when I was around Buffy's age. Not my boyfriend was an evil vampire, oh, okay. but I definitely had. <laughs> it was a know. really specific conversation, Andy. Yeah, I was like, yeah. so my boyfriend's a vampire, and I <laughs> no, but I actually did have to sit down with my mom and dad and say, listen, you remember that guy I went a couple dates with, and they're like, I don't know, you date so many people that I, you know, I'm like, okay, so this specific one, this is what he looks like. He shows up at the house. But my parents were much more proactive and wanted to talk about my feelings and how you know. So yay, mom, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, Joyce's dispassionate uh, thing here, Grant, it frustrates I mean, granted, Buffy is sort of downplaying it, but she's still not, like, getting a clue at all. And she's a, you know, she's a single mom. She should be more aware of predatory men and predatory boyfriends than, like, your average, like, oh, yeah, I, you know, not disdaining housewives or anything, but somebody who's, like, very sheltered and kind of doesn't deal in the world and single men and, and dating and all that, or not necessarily single men, but you know what I'm saying. Remember that college boy who was tutoring me? Yeah, we were dating and it ended badly. Joyce, shouldn't you be flipping the fuck out about this 26-year-old who was dating your 16-year-old? Uh-huh. Right. I mean, she does later, but it's like, yeah, why weren't you worried about it two days ago? Oh, Joyce. Oh, Joyce. Oh. I, mean, the re- I mean, poor Christine Sutherland. Like, the mm. inconsistency of Joyce's reactions and emotions, I and mean, she plays it the best she can. You know, it's like once, you know, once Joyce finds out, she Uh gets a lot better. Once we get past Dead Man's Party, then I'm much, much happier with Joyce. I just realized Joyce is also the person who dated Ted, so she really should know about creepy dudes. Like (laughs) We skipped over, and just because it's so cute, and I love to yell, Jonathan! Oh, yes. Yes, yes. Oh, that's in my notes. Yeah. And they're like, what is this, a Barnes and Noble? Like, I freaking love that. <laughs> and jo- okay, I just want to make a little side note on, on Jonathan, on Danny Strong. If you follow him or Sarah Michelle Geller on Instagram, they've been making adorable posts at each other and oh. talking about how on the unaired pilot, they became friends when they talked about their loves of musicals, especially the musical Chess, which Danny uh. Strong just rewrote the book for chess and they did it at the Kennedy center and Sarah flew out to Washington to see it. And it, it was just a sweet post to remind you that Sarah and Danny are actually as good of friends as she is with, you know, other, other more than some of her other co-stars. So I just thought that was really side note. So, so sweet that she took the time, someone that she met on the freaking unaired pilot. She Mm -hmm. never thought she was going to see again and then became Mm -hmm. Jonathan's such a part of the history of the show. Right. (laughs) And Danny Strong is so wonderful. I'm so proud of him. And Chess is one of my favorite. The book is terrible, so I hope he... 
but thank the music you because is, i really hated chess, is chess. <laughs> book to, the music is really freaking great um so anyway side note yay yeah. danny and sarah's like long-lasting 20-year friendship and squee and squee jonathan he came into the library to look to look for books on stalin yes but also i gotta say the barnes and noble comment is good but even better is when Giles goes, this is the school library, and Xander goes, since when? <laughs> I really like that they all just kind of looked at each other and walked out. <laughs> yeah. So I think one of the freakiest, there's a lot of freaky stuff in this episode, but actually mm-hmm. one the freakiest for me is when Willow's talking on the phone, and she feeds the fish, and yes. like you, if you look, there, there aren't any fish in that tank, but you you don't notice it until after you know what's going to happen. And then that, that scene of the fish just like coming out of that envelope is just, oh, uh, gosh. Yeah. The only issue with that is that I, if anybody's ever had like fish and had fish die, I'm surprised she didn't smell it like halfway across the room. Dead fish are pretty gross. But yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where like it didn't, I had forgotten about that scene until we were watching it. And I didn't twig that there were no fish in there because it's one of those like TV things. Half the time when you have like a fish tank or something in the background, there aren't any fish. They just feed it. And it's like, you know, they're going through the motions like they drink fake tea or whatever. And they also they filled the tank up pretty well. Like, yeah, you had like the stuff. Yeah, the diving guy and there's other like tchotchkes in there. So you don't really think about it. So. But, yeah, that is a really sick scene. <laughs> it's very twisted. Yeah, um, and Willow says she's really glad that her parents didn't let her get a puppy. Which is what yes. Buffy said in the last episode. Call back she's to the like, last episode. Right, where she's like, Giles is like in the puppy. She's like, I don't have a puppy. Skip it. <laughs> right? Like, she literally told Giles and Bewitched Father and Will. She's like, I don't want to hear it. I don't have a puppy. I don't have a dog. I need hair. Yeah, though, mm. I mean, Willow's pretty blasé about her parents. Like, are they not home? Like, like she's <laughs> not worried not. about Angela's killing her parents while she's yeah. gone at Buffy's. Well, maybe they're, they're a temple. You know, Ira and whatever Mrs. Rosenberg's name is. <laughs> Sheila. Sheila. Holy yeah. crap. I was able to pull that out of nowhere. <laughs> That's okay. Well, to be fair, she is the only one of Willow's parents we ever see. Yeah, <laughs> true. We just hear about Ira. The other thing that bothers the fuck out of me in this episode we talked about this a little bit in the when we you know uh talked about the last episode is the inconsistency of the writing of xander he is so mean in this episode his humor i mean he's not directly mean to buffy but a lot of these lines he throws out and his snark is a really biting snark in this episode, yeah. did anybody else notice that? It's just these really, and He's it's angry. unnecessary comments. But even at the beginning of the thing, it's these very pointedly, I mean, Xander's comments are obvi- a lot of times unhelpful, but they're funnily unhelpful, <laughs> right? You're like, oh, Xander. But this time they have this really biting derailment of conversation, which again is the inconsistency between writers on how to write dialogue for Xander. Sometimes he's jovially stupid, and sometimes he's this snarky, biting... I don't know, Xander's Xander's side comments were not funny to me. He was mean in this episode. Yeah, Yeah. he was very mean, mean and not just for the reasons... Like, I get the faster pussycat kill kill speech. Like, that, you know, he's very angry there. Mm -hmm. But the other, the comments, it just, they just, they just grossed me out, and I just didn't like the writing... You know, I don't like Xander to begin with, but the writing here was just unnecessarily cruel. Mm-hmm. 
Not Xander. The writing of Xander was unnecessarily cruel. It doesn't look like it does later on, but this is the first appearance of the magic box. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Is it called the magic box? We don't know. We don't see the sign. It's just the boogity boogity store, whatever the hell it, it, they call it. You see <laughs> something on the window. It, I don't think it says the magic box. No, I, I don't think it is the magic box yet. From the way they refer to the sh- the shop through the the show, like always joking about like the the shop owners not surviving, they always do imply that it is the same store. It's just that it has a high turnover rate of which owners. is so weird because it's not the same layout and the steps down it's into not. it. It's, and no. it's not. not. It's yeah. not the same. It's, it's not, but it, in universe, it is supposed to be the same place. But yeah, uh, so we get the first appearance, and we got the first appearance of the Orb of Thessala, which, by the way, that was the French name for this episode, the Orb of Thessala. Oh, oh interesting. I did Except not know in that. French, so it was like the Le Boule de Thessala, <laughs> or something like that. Beautiful. <clears throat> I am curious as to why the rituals of the undead would be in Romanian, considering that there is an actual Kaldorosh language, but I am, I've given up all, it's... It, it's it's again it's you know as andy said in the last episode it's shooting eye beams magic yeah Ooh, pew, a lot pew, of like pew, illogic pew. speaking speaking of uh, the the magic shop i have a continuity thing it's like the guy says that uncle enios was a good customer how long was he in town right I mean, exactly i mean like what why is he buying <laughs> stuff from a local sunnydale magic shop enough that he talks about his niece yeah, maybe they do mail order i mean you know um... but, but 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 like really i mean is doesn't he live somewhere in europe don't they have like closer mail order i mean the shipping would be prohibited <laughs> <laughs> well maybe it's a famous place kind of like the way the magical child you know or enchantments in downtown new york were and are like world famous so you know you there's a special touch if it comes from there, even if it's the same. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, maybe. Maybe it's like touched by the Hellmouth, so therefore it's, it's you know, slightly better quality stuff, or it's just prestige. I actually did that in my fanfic. I had, like, this mystical sword, and it was uh, for- forged from the tooth of an old one in the fires of the Hellmouth. Mm. Nice. Which is probably taking Hellmouth way too literally, but fuck it. It was, you know, it was <laughs> a cool sword. <laughs> Just a random comment. Jenny looks so beautiful in this episode. Yeah, yeah, but also, I was thinking when watching it, that outfit is scream, screams 1990s, like, fashion. But the good 90s. Yeah, the good one, because it's like really, Because I remember the, 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 the sheer... The tank top, the, 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 the tank top camisole thing under or over like a sheer top and her shoes with the chunky heels and then the long skirt. It's just like, it's beautiful outfit. It's like, it oh is my a God. beautiful outfit and it's very, uh, not, I hate the word age appropriate. I really, really do. But it's not the same thing that Buffy and Cordelia would wear, but while still making her look like a mature adult woman, but still fashionable. And, and uh, she looks absolutely, yeah, she does. She looks She's, gorgeous. I would wear it now. That's how I feel about it. David, any, um, given last week's episode and your comments, anything to say on Jinbash? Um, yeah, I, I, I wish he was wearing the raincoat because it's a really nice raincoat. And, uh, she looked like absolutely like stunning. She looks great. I mean, that that is a really good look on her. Also, the makeup they gave her, they made her look very ethereal. It's a good look to die in. And one does wonder if given what happens later in the episode, if they weren't pushing, making making her look, you know, beautiful and ethereal. and Oh, I'm sure. 
But also the muted colors and the sort of, yeah, no, I mean, it was a good, really great choice by the costume designers. I mean, if you're going to die, at least die pretty. And the funny thing I was thinking is that it's not, I mean, she stands out in like every scene she's in and it's, but it's sort of a gray with like embroidery or whatever, gray and floral. It's not like this loud outfit that, you know, but somehow it like she stands out in every shot too. It just, Mm -hmm. yeah, she looks great. It's distinctive without being over the top. Yeah, Yeah. gaudy. Thank you. This is the first episode where it's made absolutely clear that Willow is Jewish. I mean, granted, it was pretty clear if you, like, just, like, look at what her last name is and everything, but they actually state outright that, you know, that Willow is Jewish. Mishpaka! (laughs) There's a scene, that very short scene with Jenny and Willow, uh, Willow, Jenny and Buffy, Buffy. where she Mm. is a little, and she's, she knows she's going in to talk to her about Giles and she says the shitty thing, but then she she thinks about it. Even within her own pain, Buffy is becoming a mature person that is, mm-hmm. I mean, we'll see it at the end of the episode, her absolute concern and just love for Giles. And that even shows in that short scene where she decides to suck up her own fucking feelings to make. <laughs> it's hard for teenagers <clears throat> to suck up their own feelings. Yeah. Especially in this type of situation. Yeah. yeah. I mean, where it was an absolute betrayal of trust. So I just want to commend my girl for thinking about the... It's hard. I mean, we talked about it in previous episodes about Buffy and Giles getting to know each other and seeing each other for more than... But it's also hard to, like, think... You're so so, so absorbed, and when it's your parents, you don't think about their sort of inner life sometimes. And she really did take the time to do that for Giles for her mentor mm-hmm. and the person that she truly loves. Sarah is also incredible in this episode. She's her acting is so oh, mm-hmm. on point. So great. So great. According to my notes, we're back to um Joyce. Uh, uh. Joyce, 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 Joyce. Yeah. Great scene though. And this is Angel Angelus trying to uh grab Joyce and basically tell her, you know, everything that's gone on. I will say Joyce does keep her cool. She's very she, firm yeah, and very she does. Direct. She's like, um, you have to go away. You have to go away. Kind of beelining towards yeah. the house. Joyce, one, you should call the police. No matter, like you can't just say I'm going to call the police. Just you, you got to get into the house and call the police because he's mm. obviously unstable. And two, don't look so shocked that your 17 year old daughter slept with that really hot guy. When I mean, yeah, I, I mean, yeah. My uh-huh. 17-year-old daughter was like, say, I would be like, I get it. <laughs> I feel you. Let's talk about Nothing. your emotion. Because I'd be, you know, I'm not a mom, but I would be a better mom than Joyce. Um, Especially considering the last episode. And it's like, they remember this happened. She hardcore came on to Xander. Like, hardcore. They didn't get some sort of amnesia. You know? Right. They remember. <clears throat> as evidenced by Buffy being like, hey, thanks for not, you know, sexually assaulting me. Big, big props. Yes. Um so, like, maybe maybe take a step back, Joyce. Take a breathe. Yeah, I, we were talking also before about the horror movie elements. I mean, I just think that scene with Joyce and, like, Angel, uh, to me, that's very tense and that's very, like, horror movie, too. And, like, is she going to get into the house? Is he going to kill her? You know, it just feels like that sort of, like, 90s slasher, you know, film. And it, it's good. The, the tension is, like, really good. And the fact that she gets in the house and then, you know, Buffy basically slams a door in his face. It's like, oh, my God, I can breathe now. So even knowing what was going to happen, it's still, like, it's still there. So like, That episode still is so yeah. effective because I get still legitimately, I know what's going to happen. 
up and I'm prepared. But it legitimately gets to me again as a woman. Yeah. It, it really it, it. I I don't know if that was the point of the episode, but as a a woman living in this world, this episode really gets to me at a very visceral level. This episode, there's so much tension going on on different levels because you have Buffy's entire storyline, which is completely separate from Jenny's storyline because there is like a Jenny storyline and there's all of these peaks and valleys and the, and, and they kind of intersect with each other. And that's what, that's why everything works so well because you know, you have Angel, like you, you think initially that the, um, problem with the episode is going to be Angel's trying to get into Buffy and Willow's houses. And, you know, once you get to this point where it's like, sorry, Angel changed the locks, then you take a breath and it's like, oh my god, everything is okay. And then you get to the fucking school. It yeah. does. It sets it up really well. It's it's not... They create such a tension in this episode and it actually pays off because you get lulled into that false sense of security. And oftentimes... You know, as Jan said, this has a really horror movie feel. Uh, people tend to overplay their hand when it comes to that. Like, the first thing that comes to mind is the American remake of The Ring. I, I thought that movie ended, like, six times because it just kept punching you in the face with all these <laughs> random... But True. they do it so masterfully in this episode that you think, mm. okay, so this is the main point is to keep Angel out. We've done that. What could happen? What could possibly go wrong? Well. <laughs> well, it, it's essentially... It's it's the same thing with with magic, uh, like stage magic. It's all about misdirection. I mean, that's that's what this all that's. I mean, and this is true of much narrative fiction. Is that you you essentially you have to find ways to hide your real intent to make the story work. I don't mind a good twist in a film, mm -hmm. but like Logan said, it's like when it's that purposeful telegraphed twist this isn't a right. telegraphed well no not that's at all i mean there are something that going back and watching it as many times as i have there are some subtle telegraphing things that are great on a rewatch yeah, but in the nuanced, initial though. watch is like but and they're nuanced and they're like yeah i mean this is a great 45 minute little and which is probably why it plays because you get something like even like logan's example of the ring where it's like did this movie end oh is it ending because they have sometimes you have a lot of creative freedom within structure and the structure of a television episode is 45 minutes 40 45 minutes yeah and because the the directing is so great it just and that ratchets up the tension even more yeah also speaking of misdirection i mean i think this is the first time really that joss you know joss has ever you know where he really like lays down the hammer in terms of romantic relationships i don't think we really have seen like that that if you, you can't be happy in a relationship in a joss whedon universe you know somebody's gonna die you know somebody's gonna break up i mean yeah we have angel and buffy breaking up but it's not this this is the first time we really get that 16 ton weight dropped on us and i think at the time nobody knew that this was going to happen i mean we see giles and jenny talking and you think oh they're gonna get back together yay so i guess that i i guess that uh jenny was gonna die because of the promos yeah. promos that's i think that's what the promos were like to bring up. what are these people i don't know oh. watching it later i had oh. no idea oh. yeah. yeah there was there was some promo and i was like well i'm pretty sure out of the people they showed in that promo clip it's gonna yeah. be i mean it's still i mean i didn't know for sure but i i mm -hmm. had an inkling that it might be jenny because i thought at this point in the series, it would have been too much to take out 
Willow or Xander or Giles or Joyce even. Yeah. So, uh, well, promo monkeys are always separate from the main production. That's always handled by the show. right. Yeah. This was yeah. actually meant by Joss to be. Jenny's death was supposed to tell you nobody's safe. In terms of um, this episode being structured very much like a horror movie, it's a horror movie where you actually care about the people that are being terrorized. Because so often in horror movies, it's like, oh, they're just, you know, it's the bimbo or it's, you know, the archetypes from Cabot in the Woods, which Joss and Drew Goddard will later get into. Cannon fodder, basically. Yeah. 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 I just realized something else, though. We were, we were talking about horror movie tropes. And in a weird way, I mean, one of the horror tropes is, you know, people get killed be, by the, sla the slasher slash stalker because they have sex. And I'm just realizing, like, Jenny's intent was to have sex with Giles that night, probably. Yeah. Well, well she's coming by know. his apartment that night. There's at least a hint that, you know, maybe... Well, going by someone's apartment to talk out your stuff is a lot different than going over just to have sex. Yeah, I and also, she she's going to go over to tell Giles about the spell. The spell, which is pretty overriding of most of yeah. other things at it this point. It just feels point. like there's like a, there's a hint of it also, especially the way it plays out. Well, the, yeah, the fact that Giles was not surprised by what was set up there. Yeah, I mean that does suggest something. It does but I, I'm just I'm, I'm being sarcastic here anyway. But that's yeah. like one well, of the I think things. one of the things about this episode is considering how big this episode is how landmark this is it is incredibly insular there are two characters in this episode that are not named you know you have the shopkeeper and you have the policeman but everyone else is a major character and like you we're used to episodes of buffy where buffy you know has to like save these innocent people or you know buffy is unable to save innocent people so this one is entirely angelus versus the scooby gang and it's the Scooby gang is terrified of Angelus, who is used to be one of them. And not only that, Angelus ends up killing one of them. Somebody who has been with them since, like, what, episode five or six? Yeah. Like, and he's terrorizing all of them because he terrorizes Buffy, he terrorizes Willow. Um, you know, eventually it becomes Giles, too. So, yeah, it's it's very personal. It is. And, and, and the, the way they set him up as a villain is so... I mean, and all the actors in this are firing on all cylinders. Yeah, they're amazing. The, the, they're amazing. Mm -hmm. David is oh, yeah. amazing. Sarah is just, and, and we'll get that when we talk about the scene where Giles finds Jenny, but I want to talk about Tony in that too. Is amazing. Before we get to that, let's talk about the scene in the school. Obviously, they're pulling on horror tropes because otherwise you wouldn't be working in a public building like that where you, you know a vampire can go in. Late at night, alone, yeah. I, I will say this about the 90s. This is kind of light, lighting up a little bit. That um, good job backing up your work, Jenny. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and if it, and yep. if it was today, they'd fight, have to find another reason because if he just threw a laptop down on the floor, they like let's Willow go to the class. Willow, Willow may not have thought to like recover the hard drive because it's just a teacher's computer. Mm -hmm. So yay for backing up your work. Yay for dot matrix printers. I was like really, really. I was like, oh yeah, I forgot about those. <laughs> yeah, no, this it, th this that one little bit was so painfully nineties because you had that humongous slab of a computer with the the little floppy disk coming out of it, and then the dot matrix computer with the runners on the side. Oh. And those enormous monitors. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god! I thought that, that like I have 
a note from way earlier in the episode. It's like, oh my god, those monitors are huge. <laughs> <laughs> so very, very 90s. And yeah, she, I mean, she's working alone mm -hmm. in the school late at night. There's nobody else in the school. No janitors. No maintenance people. No, like, after, you know, late night adult, like, course people. Nothing. So very, very horror trope there, too. I, I was wondering how Jenny was going to get out of there eventually. Does she have keys? That does Regression. not seem like something they do. I wouldn't be surprised if Jenny could get keys. In her panic, she's trying every door available. Okay. Mm -hmm. Right, I think in a not panic, she knows what door just, like, locks behind it and leads out and is oh, okay. Fair you know enough, what I mean? Yeah. Like, I mean, when you're panicked and running and frightened for your life, you're not thinking about what door do I have keys to? What is the best route out? You're just... She has a flight response, not a fight response. Or a freeze response, but like, you know what I mean? Like in, in a moment of panic, you, you're just going to try anything that yes. is going to get you out of the building. So I'll, I'll, I'll hand wave that inconsistency. Yeah. And there's also, again, like horror trope because it's not quite right. Like the, the fire doors and stuff, those are never locked. There's, I mean, you're always supposed to be able to get out of a building from those, you know, if there's a fire in the building, because if you need to, uh, if you need a key to get out of a fire door, like the, the ones that separate the different, like wings um people would die and that's the whole point is that's why they're fire doors they don't actually lock yeah i mean yeah i mean it, it's it's a horror, it's horror trophy which is fine but i was just like yeah again okay. like i said in in a panic to run away it's it's you never know what your body's gonna do and and how much panic you're gonna go through in that moment and god angel just him showing up over the top of the shot you know she's sitting there she's starting to print the thing they, and then the camera just mm -hmm. pans up and he's just sitting there like we're on cam right now, listeners, so I'm, of course, acting it out in my... Because that's what I do. I, I gesticulate and do things. But, man, that shot is just... Yeah, like, chills up your spine. It's, it's, it's even knowing he was going to be there. It was creepy as fuck. I was just like, oh, my God, right. Everything is so good. <sighs> like, the filming is good. The writing is good. David is... Like, yeah, David... I mean, cause we're going to say so much about his acting. And we have been since Innocence. He is so good at this, playing evil. This episode is his absolute best. Yes. In Buffy. There's some great ones that he does in Angel, but in in that this is his absolute best episode. Just like the framing of the scene when they actually kill off Jenny, when it's in front of that window and just oh, yeah. the way that just Jenny just completely is turned and so painful um, and, it, and it's and it's almost an insult i've read this commentary so yes I'll just like trash because just it's her. right he doesn't feed he doesn't no. do he i mean obviously he he's gonna, yeah he's got he's setting this up for giles to see with the but you know but at the same time it's like almost insulting to have a vampire kill you without actually feeding feeding yeah, yeah. which is it's their waste. natural prey instinct and to have them do it a different way and angels know for the but oh god there was also a meta reason for it um joss like i mean i know it's like ty king wrote this yeah sure sure uh joss specifically said that he chose to have jenny's neck be broken so that the audience didn't have hope that she would be a lot that she would come back as a vampire okay oh wow well, yeah yeah. yeah you know what maybe i heard that on the commentary yeah it's also, it's so damn brutal. I mean, just the fact that you don't know what's going to happen. You still kind of like, maybe she'll get away and then just bam. And it's like, oh my God, it's over. What the hell just happened? Yeah. So. In the interview, Joss also says that there was a long discussion about whether to do 
it have him do it in vampire face or not. And they decided that vampire it would be too too horrible if he didn't have the vampire face. So well, it's actually a uh, funny note um, and spoiler spoiler for anybody who hasn't read the comics, but in the comics Angel kills Giles. He doesn't do yeah. right. He gets better though. Oh, <laughs> um, <does> <laughs> uh, and he does it basically the same way where mm. Angel breaks his neck. But that time Angel has his regular face. Um, okay. so. But yes, yeah, so there was a lot of debate about, you know, because they, they wanted to, having him do it with his regular face would be too far because you need people to still root for Angel to be with Buffy. So Yeah, you can't associate that humanity with him. He has to be a full-blown monster when he does something so monstrous or we can't yeah. give him a Absolutely. Oh, oh. Sorry, I'm just giving myself the willies. The yeah. whole, it's okay. It's just really... We can start bashing on Joyce again. <laughs> we can, oh, yay. and there is some levity in this scene because Willow has a great fucking line, but... I mean, she sh she shames Buffy for her sexuality. She gets mad at her. She blows up. It's not. She does come through and softens by the end of the scene and tells yes. Buffy how much she loves her and wish. Yeah, she's like, I wish you talked to me about this. Well, Joyce, no, you don't because you don't notice anything. But and I think it's the way Christine Sutherland plays it that you all you feel a little more catharsis by the end of that scene. With Joyce and Buffy, like, there's not going to be as much conflict. Like, Joyce isn't going to constantly harp on it. Joyce obviously doesn't want Buffy to talk to her. No. About... She doesn't. No, she doesn't. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, I mean, and that's a hard, I mean, it's always, like, she says, is this the talk? Did I just give you the talk? Did we just have the yeah. talk? And she's 17. Why are you having the fucking talk now? Right, exactly. Yeah, like, most people have this talk at, like, I don't know, 14, 15, 13, depending, yeah. People have the talk, like the mechanic. I don't think she never told Buffy the mechanics of it in the yeah. biology. No, no, yeah. yeah, but I think the the, the talk about um, uh, how emotional intimacy affects you. And again, we weren't as on. We weren't no. all as on it. I, I, and actually, I will say I this: that like, right from the religious background that I I come from. Well, not come from, but that I am in as a Unitarian Universalist. We have had a curriculum that has talked about this for 30 years, and that is really great. So the kids I know get this very nuanced talk. But thinking mm. about the kids I know that are not Unitarian, other people's friends, I'm like, how much nuance, even my, my nieces and nephews, how much nuance are they getting? I'm seeing. Okay. Mm. I am the person here who is the contemporary with Buffy. I am yeah. two yeah. years younger than Buffy is. So... And also, my mother was fucking hardcore Catholic. <laughs> I mean, basi okay, basically, okay. by the time I came around, she was not so hardcore Catholic. That's why she married my dad. But I had the talk. Like, I, I not only had the mechanics of sex talk, but I had a, you know, emotional, how you deal with this kind of stuff. Be open with this kind of stuff. I had that talk when I was 14. Good for your mom. Yay. Well, I mean, part of the reason was, you know, there was a girl in my class who got pregnant at 14. So. Oh, yeah. See, I, I, oh, God, this is so stereotypical, <clears throat> but I had 10 friends become pregnant before the age of 16 or 17. Oh, gosh, but yeah. That's just Absolutely. sort of culturally something that happened. I'm an older generation. I mean, you know, I'm like 10 years or more. But you guys, but and my parents were like liberal, but they were kind of 
uptight when it came to sexuality and you know even new york jewish background but i mean we i don't know if it was my school and i'm not necessarily in the most liberal of areas but we actually had like peer group counseling and we talked about that stuff in like sex ed class biology class and that kind of thing more so than even with my family but you know we had uh, one of my friends got pregnant at the age of 17 like when she was a freshman in college we had a couple of kids girls that dropped out of school when i was like 15 16 also they got pregnant so i mean we discussed it and there was some discussion about emo- you know are you emotionally ready it's more than just like the mechanics or the hormones or whatever you know do you want to do this and why but it may have been my school too, but I think I got it more from like peer group. I'm four or five years older. So like, but I didn't get, I got the mechanics. I didn't get, I got a lot of, well, when you love someone and you find someone you want to marry, because baby, that's my, my parents' context though. That, that is right. their, mm-hmm. their religious background and context. So well, I don't know. Joyce things is are, so are real different in the deep South. So. <laughs> yeah. like, and and, and actually Logan being, younger than all of us knows that abstinence only education did not come into prevalence until later we had full comprehensive sex education in the 90s but then logan logan's generation didn't get any of that at all because then you get into the yeah so you know thanks w you know i think also Thanks, thanks w it just fucking kills me because the hypocrisy of it all because you've had Jen, uh, you've had Joyce go on for a season and a half, almost two seasons now of you can come to me. I've read all of the parenting books and I just want you to talk to me. And the very second Buffy actually comes to her with a problem because she came to her earlier in this episode and is like, I was dating this guy and it went badly. And Joyce doesn't bother to follow up on it. Joyce didn't say, how serious did you get with this guy? You're 17 years old. Did you have sex with this guy? And then Joyce gets mad that Buffy's not talking to her about the fact that she was intimate with this guy. And Joyce, you had the opportunity to talk to her about it and you didn't. I just had a little bit of a revelation. At this point, these writers were actually four writers in a writer's room, very young, right? Joss was 30-ish. Marty is about the same age. Yeah. None of these people had teenage children at this point. Right. They were all viewpointing this from the lens of this is how I felt as a teenager in my teenage experience, as opposed to looking at a character like Joyce and good parenting from the, Mm. I, I mean, I think some of them had children, but they had very young toddler children. And so like, so that's an interesting sort of aspect of the people and the ages of who they were when they were writing it also and where their perspective was still in. And also I'm just it's 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 suddenly striking me now and this is spoiler alert. I mean we get to band candy and and uh, Joyce is like mentally 15, 16 years old. What does she do as soon as she gets alone with Giles? She has sex with him twice and doesn't think about it. So the hypocrisy there too of like her getting on Buffy who was dating somebody's, you know, obviously seriously and felt seriously about somebody as compared to Joyce suddenly jumping in the sack with Giles is a bit much. A teenage kid at this point, I'd be like, I'm not telling you anything about what I did when you were your age because I don't want you to know about what I did. It's really weird because I had friends even growing up, like in the 70s, I had a couple of friends whose moms were like, you know, the sort of the the stereotypical hips, divorce, say, you know, single moms dating. And 
my not being their daughter, I knew what they were up to because they loved to overshare with everything they were doing. And it was kind of gross. And they were also like sharing things like the sensual woman and Xavier Holland and like, you know, talking to us, sitting down and talking to us about oral sex and things that like, okay. And I have a friend, um, MC knows her, um, who's a fanfic writer in another fandom. And her mom used to read her fanfic and like, basically like give her pointers and stuff it's all it's, it's all an individual parenting yeah. choice right and how are how our experiences just in this conversation are so different but so yeah i mean joy's terrible and then you get badness Ah, uh, it's like the scene with giles is it's the worst scene ever but it's also so fucking beautiful like artistry of the scene because the scene's silent basic like no it's not silent but it's and tony's acting okay tony's face when he sees that goddamn rose and he sees the candles and he sees the champagne joy on his face is yeah. just but it's you know other actors with less experience might have overplayed all those sort of facial but yeah, tony is so and giles is a character that's very controlled of his emotions to begin with Right. And so, but there's absolute joy, but it's not. It's like, it's the Clark Kent moment. He takes off the glasses and his face just glows when he sees this stuff. And it's like, knowing what's going on, it's like, kill me now because you're tearing my heart out. And when he sees the body, though, it's not this horrible ah, shock and awe. It's this very, like, and the scene with the police, it's, it's just so. He, he just, he drains. Like, everything just, it's, he doesn't fall apart. He just, mm-hmm. he, he yeah. loses. He he hollows out. Tony's head is just. It is a really a nearly flawless piece of acting there. That is well. I mean, not just it's not just the acting, the directing in that scene, the way everything is shot is beautiful. The music that they have with it, just it, it, it's cut the way it's cut together. It's all so beautiful. Funny uh, bit of trivia: the uh, singer on the recording didn't know that they were going to be used in this episode because the studio had bought the rights from whoever had owned the rights to the recording. Right. And their daughter told them that they were in, they recognized the piece that was in the episode and they were very happy about it because it's like my daughter was saying like, you know, how cool it was that I was in an episode of Buffy. And also the <laughs> use of music. I mean, it's, it's Lobo M and I mean, you know, just it's the end of Lobo M and, you know, uh, Mimi dies and, you know, if, consumption there and she's dead on the the bed and after blah blah so it just works like atmospherically too and we you know talk about touches of joss that just feels like a joss like moment the but the whole building up and like walking up the stairs and all the candles on the stairs and the the flowers on the stairs and you just like you know oh oh my god it's just like it's such an emotional like stab you in the heart and and this having been the dp of all these episodes before he directs right Yeah. yeah That that DP is going to know the actors and what to do and shoot them. And so he's going to be able to frame Tony in a way right. that he because he knows that that actor is going to be able to get the which is, you know, which is which is great. And, and I know there are a lot of like long term DPs on a lot of different shows that end up directing. But like the, there's a relationship with your actor if you have a very consistent DP for every episode mm-hmm. and uh yeah, it's just it's so incredibly shot and framed and and uses every resource in that bag in such an extraordinary way. Yeah, this is somebody who knew the actors, knew the space, like had been around for a for a while. Like I mean, while it might have been his first, you know, directing gig, 
somebody who obviously knew the show enough to really you know take advantage of it and this is something that often gets lost in the mix is knowing he could depend on the actors yeah. yes to give the reaction the appropriate reactions and not have to worry that he would later have to work around that yeah and we have different levels of experience in the show like between the actors like it was nikki's really first major thing and Allie been doing it for other Sarah's been doing you know and then you've got the maturity of, of you know at Tony Head but they all consistently come through really well and I think this cast probably learned for each other and very communicative and very very giving scene partners which you can tell in a, in a lot of this um, and I think that's why Buffy works so well even with some of the flaws we point out every week yeah, is there there's a really there's a real ensemble connection and there's not one person like fighting for dominance so i it's it's beautifully done i cried i openly was crying and 20 years on having seen this episode at least 10 times i still cry every Mm. single time yeah it's so iconic and it's just like i even now talking about it i'm getting kind of emotional because yeah it's just it's such a powerful like for any show ever just like it's a very iconic visual This, this is a piece of art that scene is just unbelievable so once we get past the blase police, yeah, boy, are they fr- right. freaking blase? Who don't even find Giles's weapons, even though it's they're in a chest, <laughs> I know, right, right in the middle of the room. <laughs> well, he's got angels' cloaking spells on them, obviously, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and they don't they don't keep the house. I mean, they ha- have the tape up, but nobody stays at the house later. It's just we got to bring you in for some routine questions, and then that's it. But then we get um, some more um, monologue from Angelus while there's the wordless phone call, which there is actually words too, but I prefer not to know them because mm-hmm. it comes off as so much better. Just and I, and I think I've read in an interview, or was it in Joss's little interview? Maybe it was in one of the Buffy magazines way back in the day about like they had actually written a dialogue scene and all, you know. Yeah, there's a transcript on the the Wikipedia page that I read last night. So yeah, and actually, um, the phone—it was a working phone, so that both uh, Allie and Sarah could talk to Tony. Oh man, because yep. they thought that the reaction would be better if they actually talked to each other. I know what the dialogue is, but it's much better not thinking about that because the scene is just so beautiful not hearing them right and just watching their reaction and they use this technique <clears throat> later on way later they do on. it in the body they do it in the body they do it again with dawn in the body um so they obviously learned from and and you know, i think that. what they do really well is that they don't make it silent you can almost as if it's muffled you can hear willow crying yeah you yes. can hear dawn yeah. crying and i think that makes it more powerful because uh, you know, sometimes if something's really shocking, it's sort of like you suddenly have gotten in your ears or something. It's it's it was done really masterfully. And also the fact that um, Angel is like Angelus is like watching, listening in. There's just the, the level of sadism and just like cruelty at that moment is like so evil. Ugh. But his voiceover is so smooth. The scene is sad, but it's also perverse. Yeah, it's it is. Really it enjoying is. it so much. It, yeah. is, it is grief on display in a really awful way. I mean, And you can see him getting off on it, which makes it even, you know, which, like I said, it's just a horribly sadistic and evil, but it's beautiful because that's what they're trying to push. And he does it. Everybody does it right. Mm-hmm. Well, and I was going to say, I have this at the very top of my notes that this episode directorially wise and 
framing and even some of the writing, it's a great use of multiple POV and shifting POV. Yeah. You have Giles' POV in the light, and then you have Angel's, and it, and especially with the voiceover, it's got this real, it's, yes, Willow, Allie's going to break your heart with your big eyes and her tears, but that is shot through this very, yeah, malicious point of view. So you're not, you're, you can hear it and you, and you can feel bad for those characters, but at the same time, you're looking at it through Angel's eyes. Yeah, and through and, the window, and, which and kind the, of gives you the, a, a step away, too. And the thrill of him just damaging these people. And we get our scoops together um, to, and we get the scene of Xander, uh, the, the faster pussycat kill kill, <laughs> and fuck you, Xander. So tone deaf. <laughs> It's horrible. Yeah. Again, yeah. it's the yeah, the writing of Xander in this episode is horrible. I understand what his feelings are. His feelings of yeah, we should let Giles kill Angelus because somebody should kill Angelus. But Xander's speech is entirely selfish and about so Xander. Yeah, it's about Xander. This whole he he was basically doing a verbal version of the "I told you so" dance. Yeah, and on top of that, it feels like it's a little bit of a hint of what's going to happen later on in Becoming, um, where he lies to Buffy about things. Spoiler alert! Because it's just like he wants Angel dead. He just like it doesn't matter what anybody else feels, anybody cares about. He just wants him dead, and that's all that counts. And it's horrible. He sees that Angel like won Buffy as a trophy. Yeah. Right, and he may not want necessarily his desire for Buffy may not be in the forefront of his mind anymore with his relationship with Cordelia but he would still like <laughs> to have the last word he would still like to win and Angel dying would be his trial. and it's not it's... about Giles he's not it's not out of concern for Giles no not at all and, and just even backing up before that I can't remember if it's before or after that scene <gasps> happening I, I, Cordelia has one of the only funny parts in this episode where she keeps talking about her car Right. And, the and that, and that Mom but Willow has this, in the house is also good. Right, but there's yeah. this one moment, and it's it's the smallest thing from Charisma, where they say, can you drive us to Giles? And she goes, of course. And it's very focused, and unlike Xander, and again, it's in, it's in two short words, Cordelia's actual care for everybody around her versus Xander's I told you so mentality. Cordy knows and is emotionally honest enough to know when it's appropriate to be selfish, like she can be, and when it's, of course, what do you need into work? And Xander is, you know, referencing Russ Meyer, which is always great. I love Faster Pussy Cat Kill Kill. It's, mm-hmm. it's a great film, but not in that instance. Right, and I think that shows also, as we were saying, like, just the last episode, like, Cordy's... Cordy's actual growth as a character the fact that she who's supposed to be the mean girl supposed to be the selfish bitch is more aware and more giving and more concerned about other people than Xander who's supposed to be their friend and supposed to be their ally she's you're like oh my god I love you Cordy Xander go fuck yourself (laughs) so moving on back to 90s website trivia what (laughs) incredibly brassed off Slayer was one of the first yeah it was a website website Back in the days when there were so there was like five people shipping Spuffy, and it was not called Spuffy at the time. I, I don't even know when they started to call it Spuffy. It, mm. That feels like a very recent kind of thing. No, about at least fifteen years ago. May, maybe in season six they started calling season it Spuffy. Six, yeah, maybe season yeah. six, season seven. You started getting a lot more portmanteaus of 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 ship names, like before. All that you didn't have Rary or 
Yeah, you had all those weird things where you gave it a name of like the HMS pumpkin pie or whatever. Kirk Spock. Spock. Right. Like there wasn't a portmanteau. It was Kirk Spock. Yeah. I, I, was, then, I was actually just trying to think of when Benefer happened because I feel like that was when it first like happened. Like uh, Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez. That's when they first really had the portmanteau. Oh, yeah. Benefer and... Yeah, 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 all those oh, permit okay. issues probably then then, then uh, moved over into shipping. That makes okay, sense. Okay, they they got together in two thousand and two. So, okay, yeah, because by the time I started watching oh, Buffy, yeah. which was probably around the same time, like season six, I know people were calling it Spuffy already. So, yeah, that that would have been uh, season six. So okay. then that that kind of all lines up. I'm gonna say that that's probably when that happened. But yes, anyways, when incredibly brassed off Slayer. So a little bit of fandom history for y'all and again like the the fight uh just this episode is just so i mean like there's actually a it feels to me like this episode does not have a lot of dialogue to it no and that's okay i thought the i thought the fight choreography on the on the fight was a little clunky there was a little clunkiness but other than that i think I did make a note that, I mean, I think that Angel was right. Like, whatever happened to good old-fashioned stakes? It's like, why did Giles just go in there and, like... First of all, he, he hits him with a quarrel. Why didn't that dust him? And then he suddenly starts going after him with a torch as compared to, like, just staking him and, like, getting rid of him. I mean, I know Giles is angry and he's a lot of it is just to, to torture Angel and get his feelings out. And we can't kill Angel anyway. But it's like, yeah, I think legitimately somebody would have gone on to stake them. Please spike someone. Stake, not spike. Stake someone with a flaming torch because it's wood yeah i mean that would actually that would be a pretty cool kill to show which they never did is just jabbing with like a flaming that would actually be awesome yeah because he's just kind of waving it around a lot i mean i think part of it is probably he's so angry he's not thinking straight yeah and and i think i Mm -hmm. think the fight choreography is a little lacking in the first couple of seasons leads up to buffy and giles together and this is Breaks me. It's everything. Breaks me. Basically, I think feel like this is the culmination of Buffy and Giles's relation. This is like their the beginning part of their relationship is now over. They have now gotten to know each other, and once we get to this point, they are family. You can't leave me. I can't do this alone. Is what she the quote from Buffy, and it is. <sighs> I do want to say that Spike totally wanted Giles to kill Angel. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Drew, don't get involved. He totally wanted. Him and to go and down. can I yeah. just make a note that uh, that Juliet Lando, just what Drusilla was wearing, she looks absolutely amazing in like the yeah, portrait. She always looks. Like yeah, she, she does. does. She's that really? look, she's especially. Just, she's like, oh my god, you're beautiful. She's just. So, she yeah. always looks freaking amazing. Yeah, I have to say the whole the Spike Angel thing. I've been actually thinking about this for a few episodes now. It's like, I mean, my thoughts about this are a little blurry, but it's like. With Angel taunting Spike the whole time, it's like, does he not, does he really not understand that this could come back to bite him in the ass? Yeah, how does he not know that Spike isn't going to be in that wheelchair forever? Like, he's obviously going to heal someday. Right. And and he's always been overconfident, though. I keep wondering, is it overconfidence? Does he just underestimate Spike? Or does he just not give a shit? A little of all all of them? All of all of them. I mean, yeah, that's... Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Angelus is just, you know, a swaggering, dick-waving, you know, alpha male, I'm better than you are, and you're just this little peon, you know, and I'm gonna, and I'm gonna screw your girl, too, so. Yeah, the, 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 the Buffy and Giles there, and Sarah, and, and Tony, it's just, 
I started crying there too. I was going to say it. So broke the me break, also. the break in Sarah's voice is, and her love for him, and and it goes back to what I was talking about earlier and her maturity to say, I think about Giles. I don't. I'm not just thinking about myself and my own grief in this. I'm also thinking about Giles and what's best for him and saying, you know what, be be with Jenny. It's not. You know, it, it ties back into her thoughtfulness about someone other than herself, unlike right. fucking Xander. Yeah, and, and I think also the fact that we actually see Giles cry, that there's actually this, the, the, the mask cracks, and all suddenly that cool, confident, you know, like, stiff upper lip Brit is gone, and he's sobbing, and it's just like, oh my god, kill me now, please. It's beautiful, and I had friends that um, shipped Giles and Buffy, and as much as, you know, like, age limits, and I can see where the, that came from, because you can build on that. It, 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 it's, it's not a trigger, it's a squick. Yeah, I get it. We, back yeah. in the day, things were called squicks, and you're like, I don't want to read that. It squicks me out. No, uh, I still use that word, yet, too. There is so. definitely a deep, deep, deep connection with the two. Yeah, ones. like I said, I don't particularly ship them myself, but I can so see why other people might. It's just not my thing. So, yeah. So, beautiful, beautiful ending right there. So I, I, I do have to call bullshit on Willow teaching long-term, though. I'm starting to uh, Yeah, I yeah. mean, we're going to talk about that as things go on. We'll too. talk about that more, yes. though I am wondering if possibly with all of the teacher deaths that they would just not send <laughs> any more substitutes to Sunnydale, huh? Yeah. Or no, yeah. you know, Schneider would be like, well, actually, I love child labor. I mean, well, well, I was I'm pretty sure it's not. I mean, I understand her teaching this one class. Right, because it's right after it happened, and you know, yeah, and, yeah. She, and she does say her. that it's until the new computer science teacher comes, and it right. never happens. <laughs> right, right. You would see that's the thing about this school. You would think they would do something like, sure, Willow's going to help you with this because she knows about computers, but Giles has to sit since he's a librarian and isn't needed right. in the library every minute of the day. He has to go sit in class and monitor so there's an actual adult human being in the room. Who's also being paid by the school because, especially public schools, I'm pretty sure there's legalities as to who can teach a, a public school class. You can't just waltz in and be like, oh, hi, I'm going to teach your class now. You don't know me or I'm like a 15-year-old student. But yeah, it's just, no. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't no. make any freaking sense at all but you know sunnydale's logic is insane yeah. troll, troll logic. logic and of course we've also got the 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 thing hang the damocles sword <laughs> hanging over the head that the audience only knows about that freaking floppy disk on the side of the desk that nobody else knows where it is pretty genius and yeah. that is even the world. very 90s to have a floppy disk it's positioned really well and it's total foreshadowing no, and that's right okay. yeah. a little bit of good foreshadowing and it's even Heavy-handed foreshadowing is okay, because yeah. by the time she finds it, I had forgotten about it. The world mm -hmm. needs more floppy disk cliffhangers. <laughs> this is... Right? Yeah. It's not as much fun with, like, thumb drives or, you no. know, cloud, cloud computing, like, big deal, you know? No. Yeah. yeah. Right, yeah. I mean, okay, so final oh. thoughts on passion. Oh my god. I just felt I felt like I even knowing everything, I felt like I was going through an emotional ringer. And that horror movie quality it's like a good horror movie that you can watch again. And even when you know the beats, when you know it's coming, it still scares you and it still affects you because it's and in some ways it's even better because you, you're anticipating the shit that's gonna happen. So. I mean I think this is in my not even just top ten, top five, maybe top three yeah. episodes. And there are other episodes that I love more for some of the other things, but like in terms of just emotional wallop, I didn't even realize how just 
great this episode is, and I would put it higher than a, a few that I think would be surprising. To be mm-hmm. surprising to me that I'd probably put this over a couple that are more of an emotional favor, but in terms of actual cinematic and response, you know, and on and that it's 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 really far up there, really far up there. It's a really powerful episode, and I think we're just we we've hit the point where the production team and the actors and everyone are just firing on all cylinders, and the stakes have have gotten so high. Enormously, just the, the stakes are so high at this point. Yeah. And I think there's an element of them having confidence in where they're taking it as yeah. they're nearing the season. Yeah, there there's none of that like waffling you sometimes see, um, especially with a sophomore effort, and considering the sophomore season the second season compared to the first season that makes sense with this show but um they know exactly where they want to take this show um and they know that at this point right here it seems like and from here on out they're pretty confident in in what they're Mm -hmm. gonna do so i i just have one other comment because i have to say this because i'm me (laughs) i have some serious problems with the idea that jenny could computationally translate that (laughs) i did too i No. Magic hoodoo hell mouth squirty eye magic. No, but that's the point. Is with the computer, she's not. No, it's like I, I'm sorry, not squirty. I be Gross. magic. I be yeah, magic. But, I, but I mean, like the fact that she's um, she's trying to translate some. She's like, I'm writing a computer program to translate this this language like, that I don't have a translation for. That's not how no, <laughs> language I mean, works. I'm sorry. Are you gonna sync it up to Lycos? Are you gonna hook it up to yeah, Dogpile no. and hope they find some? It is, I mean, like, this kind of stuff is much harder than that. I mean, this is hard stuff to do if you can do it at all. And at that time, I don't think the technology was there. She's also working on basically a home computer. And she, as there is no reason to think she has the skill, the programming skills or the, the knowledge of what you would need to know to do this. Well, she is a computer science teacher, so you would think she'd have No, yeah, but this, that, that it does not, not give like you... She's not like a linguistic, you know... Right, there's PhD. a lot more going on with this kind of... St- I know people who do this kind of stuff. Look at what so. happens when you type some, like, very, very basic French into Babelfish. Yeah, auto- autocorrect, for God's sake. Yeah. yeah. Today's autocorrect <laughs> should tell you this is not possible... 20 years ago. No one ever meant to say duck in a text message. Just no. <laughs> I actually had a friend yesterday because she was late getting to the show we were going to. She's like, the ducking cab's not here yet. And I'm like, oh, honey. Okay, sometimes I do meant to type it in, but it's as a, like a joke about autocorrect. Yeah. I wrote a song about duck and autocorrect once, actually. But yeah, yeah I mean, this, this episode is amazing, even with but the yes. flaw of the translation and the computer That's my stuff. nitpick. That I had to get out. Hey, you know, you had very few nitpicks. I did. The less nitpicks David has, usually the better quality of the episode is something I have noticed. On our website, I have Innocence listed as my favorite episode. But I actually, in rewatching this, I'm like, you know what? It might actually be passion. I like this idea. Yeah, same here. It's just... I think I do like this better than Innocence. Yeah, I'd forgotten just like even visually how, you know, just visually editing. Is ev- this is like a mini movie in like a 45 minute cinematic car film. It, it's absolutely. And the editing is great. And, and everybody, it's, it, yeah, I would put this above. I would put this above Innocence, actually. Yeah. In terms of nitpicking, it's like you don't even think about it because it's such a good story and everything works so well that you can just like kind of hand wave any of the bullshit, which in other episodes it stands out because you're 
it's just the story sucks, etc. Too. Mm. Couple of quick bits of trivia. This is on Joss Whedon's non-ranked top ten list, so he won't say where it is on his top ten, but it is on his top ten. It is Anthony Stewart Head's favorite episode. They considered killing off Oz at first in this episode. Right. Yeah, that wouldn't have had the emotional impact. So yeah, no, it wouldn't have had the same emotional impact, and also they thought he had more potential as a character still. Yeah, and. Ed Sheeran in the song A Fire Love uh, was inspired by this episode and takes samples from the song Remembering Jenny. Hmm. I, I, I don't really know a lot about Ed know. Sheeran. But I know I nothing care. about Ed Sheeran except for I don't really enjoy his music. Next time we will be reviewing a much easier episode to take, even though it has to do with um, dying children. <laughs> we will be reviewing Killed by Death. This is the point we've gotten to where, like, dying children are not the upsetting parts. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, I know. It's, it's a yeah. little bit of a breather episode. We're dealing with dying children. <laughs> Phew, finally. Kill them, finally. younglings. Till then. Until then. Grr, arg. Grr, arg. Magical shooty eye beam, grr, arg. Grr, arg. Grr, arg. We'd like to thank everyone who downloaded the podcast, and an extra special thanks to everyone who shared, liked, and subscribed on social media. If you'd like your questions or comments read on the show, you can contact us on our website, returntothehellmouth.com, on YouTube at Return to the Hellmouth, on Tumblr and Facebook at Return to the Hellmouth, on Twitter at Hellmouth Return, or on email at returntothehellmouth at gmail.com. We'll be sure to read your comments on the show. Be sure to rate our show at iTunes and Stitcher, and check out our show merchandise on Tee Public and Redbubble. See you on Tuesday for Killed by Death. Grr. Arg.